ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Many housing experts and advocates argue that changing the way we manage short-stay rentals could lead to more affordable housing. Is that the way the market works, though? Let's look at what we know and what we don't know about how the short- and long-term accommodation markets function and interrelate. Nicole Gurren is a Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Sydney, and she's been engaged uh, in some research on this. Hi, Nicole. Great to have you with us. And Thomas Ziegler uh, is an urban geographer at the University of Queensland. Ditto has been researching. Hi, Thomas. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Nicole Garan, I'll start with you. Is short-stay accommodation on sharing platforms like Airbnb impacting the long-term rental market? Can we be definitive about that? Look, we certainly can be definitive about that. There's evidence from all over the world, including Australia, that in places where you've already got a pressured rental market and there's competing demand from tourists for that um, rental housing stock and you've got a higher proportion of um, short-term rentals, then you will see higher rents and you'll also see higher house prices. We were also able to see over the COVID period, which provided a great experiment in Australia, if you like, with borders closed, that in rental markets where there was a higher proportion of short-term rentals, a higher density of short-term rentals, if you like, particularly in the major cities, that rents actually fell in those markets higher than they did in other comparable rental areas. So there is a robust literature on that, but the impacts on the rental market will be different depending on the sort of local housing conditions. Well, yeah, I mean, do we know how many homes would might potentially come back to long-term rental stock if short-stay accommodation was regulated in the appropriate way? Look, that's a more difficult question. And I think when we look at the regulations that are on the table in various parts of Australia and certainly what's been occurring overseas is really trying to protect the existing rental housing stock rather than, say, take maybe a long-term holiday home and release that back to the market, although that could um, be a very good thing in some particular places. The idea more is recognising that with the rise of these online platforms such as Airbnb, for instance, it started to disrupt that sort of long-term balance between holiday homes as as an important part of the tourism infrastructure long established in many parts of the world, including Australia's coastal towns, for instance, and the sudden ability for landlords, property investors, to flip using a a platform to flip, say, from renting an apartment in central Sydney to someone who lives in central Sydney to renting that to a tourist. And so the regulations around short-term rentals now are particularly aiming to stop that flipping the loss of stock rather than, say, for instance, looking at long-established, you know, parts of the of the, um, of the the holiday accommodation sector. Okay, stemming the tide, basically. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Sigler, do we know how many properties are on the short-term rental market compared to the long-term rental market nationally? Yeah, so I – look, these, these numbers are off the top of my head, but I think – the, the peak was just before COVID. Uh, it has rebounded, and I, I'd have to check the latest numbers, and it's it's around there. But there's around 300,000 uh, short-term rentals in 
Australia, according to my data. Now that that breaks down uh, as follows. So a quarter of those are hosted, meaning the host is actually home when the guest arrives. And, and typically there's no problem with that because that's the equivalent of renting out an extra room. So then of those 200 some remaining, uh, about a hundred ish are exactly as Nicole described. They're your conventional coastal holiday rentals that have always been holiday rentals. They were never they were really purpose built as holiday rentals. It's just that they've switched to digital platforms such as Airbnb. I think the real target for these policies, um, and I'm not commenting on the policies themselves, but the real target for the policies is about the hundred thousand or so. Um, in mostly in urban areas, but also in areas that have experienced a lot of pressure um, on their their housing markets for one reason or another, say the Blue Mountains, uh, where you may see some circuit switching between uh, purpose-built long-term rentals and short-term rentals. Now, to give you an idea, Australia has about 11 million dwellings, um, of which uh, about a third, if I'm not mistaken, are rentals and about two-thirds are owner-occupied, either with a mortgage or not with a mortgage. So you're looking at about uh, one to 200,000 of three to four million. Okay. Uh, that's useful to know. That's a good starting point. So are numbers of short-term rental properties, Thomas, on the rise? Uh, they have rebounded. Uh, we haven't really seen evidence of a, of a spike that's exceeded the 2019 uh numbers there there was that the the peak was sort of just before covid uh in december so typically we'll, we'll i think we'll have to wait for this summer to find out because typically australian short-term rentals peak uh in april for easter and then there's a significant peak in uh in december january now of course the, again we need to break that down because a lot of that is australians who are traveling either they're at the coast and they've rented out their Sydney property, for example, or they're overseas and they've rented out their their coastal property. Um, and so I think we need to figure out exactly what that looks like. But yes, I imagine that it, the, the number has rebounded. It's just that the composition is slightly different. As Nicole said, uh, rent, rents did drop in major cities during COVID as people fled to sort of sea change and treat change locations. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of Airbnb hosts, I think, have abandoned uh, their pursuits in, in inner cities for, for a number of reasons. One, it's a bit cumbersome to sort of change the sheets and change the towels. Um, but more importantly, they're getting long, they're getting better long-term rents. And so, you know, turning the place over once every couple of days isn't necessarily as, as financially stable as renting it out long-term. And as we're hearing, I guess that it's quite a complicated landscape. You know, as you said, Thomas, it's seasonal. It varies place to place. Alex in Canberra, we should definitely cap Airbnbs, especially in places where there's a rental crisis. Homes are more important than holiday houses. Short-term rentals, says Chenka, surely if there's a house or flat and it's rented as holiday accommodation and it could be someone's home, isn't it a no-brainer? Let's free up these homes now to ease the rental market. Though, as we've been hearing from Thomas, sometimes uh, certain types of regulation don't free up a whole house. They just uh, make it less less lucrative to rent it out all year. Louise writes, short stay must be registered, then their numbers can be limited. If these properties go back on the market, they can then be long-term rentals or sold to be homes. They're already built housing we don't have to wait for. Why are traditional short-term hotels not complaining about them? 
interesting point. Uh, Thomas, I want to talk before we come back to Nicole Gurren uh, to compare and contrast about some research that you've been doing. You co-authored some research commissioned by the Queensland Department of Planning into the impacts of short-term rental accommodation there. But just before you tell us about that, can you give us a little bit of context about what happens around regulation in Queensland now? So Queensland is one of the light touch states. Um, New South Wales, for example, has a slightly more stringent regulation with a, a blanket 180 day cap in much of the state. But Queensland uh, is patchy. Um, Noosa is sort of the poster child for heavy regulation. Uh, Noosa has some quite stringent rules around hosts being available. But again, the the, the regulation hasn't, um, I guess, been enacted in Queensland because the state government is sort of collecting the data. And the reason for that is very simple. Queensland's a very diverse state. We have everything from, uh, you know, Hamilton Island and Airlie Beach, which are, are seasonal and extremely holiday oriented economies to sort of the Sunshine Coast, which does have a strong uh, resident population, however, is under a lot of pressure to, to Brisbane, which is a major capital city. So I think I think if you're going to set policy at a state level, you really need to uh, account for the diversity of, of different councils and, and the needs. And, and you have councils that actually have quite uh, different requirements. I mean, some, some councils are actually explicitly pro short-term rentals and some are very anti. So, Thomas, I'll come back to that regulation about whether it should be council or state or national. But tell us what your study found into how short-term rentals are affecting housing stock in Queensland. Yeah, look, and this speaks to what Nicole said. There's no definitive answer to that question. Uh, for every paper I read, and in, in fact, this is true for our own research in Queensland, for every jurisdiction where there is a strong relationship between the presence of short-term rentals and house price increases, you'll find another jurisdiction where the opposite is true. So effect, uh, So to, su- to summarize our report, which is something like 100 pages long, we found that there was no significant impact. Uh, and we found that we did we did make a number of suggestions to the state government, such as a register uh, and a potential potentially exploring some council scale regulation. But again, to summarize that document, we found that the the impact was not significant either numerically or or economically. So it sounds like that there were the different impacts, as you say, in different areas. So short term rentals weren't pushing rents up much generally, but they might push rents up in some hotspots. Is it still worth regulating them to cope with that effect? Yeah, look, it's it's a really tough one. Um, I think it's it's for me the interesting thing is the timing of the regulation. So regulation was was about to be mature anyway. So we were right at that stage. You know, Airbnb has been in Australia for a decade, and we're right at the stage where we need regulation. So I mean, there's a lot of obviously people on the text lines. This is a lot of public sentiment and a lot of political sentiment towards regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think all of us are on board with regulation. But the question it just happens to coincide with a housing crisis. So um, I think it's really important important to think very carefully through the implications of uh, how short stay rental is is regulated. And I think part of that is thinking about what what the regulation seeks to achieve. Um, In many cases, it it seeks to be a deterrent. So, for example, levies and caps um, seek to deter hosts from uh, from renting out much of the year. So effectively giving them an incentive to, to quote unquote, return the property to the long-term rental market. But in other jurisdictions, uh, it's not about deterring tourism. It's about deterring over-tourism. So uh, a lot of times they want sort of minimum stays so that there's not a lot of check-ins and check-outs in the middle of the night. 
uh, and that hosts don't stay for a week or guests don't stay for a weekend and throw a party. So again, I think if there is regulation, which I think all of us are on board with, we really need to figure out why we're regulating this thing and, and what the implications might be potentially after this housing crunch subsides. If we, as we all hope it does. We're speaking with Thomas Sigler, who's an urban geographer at the University of Queensland, and Professor Nicole Gurren, who's a professor of urban and regional planning at the University of Sydney. Nicole, we heard from you earlier that the the research is clear that rents do go up where you've got uh, lots of short-term rentals. What are your thoughts on that Queensland study that Thomas was involved in? Yeah, look, I think it's very important to be clear about the impacts on rental markets of areas with high densities of short-term rentals. And the primary impact is actually on the availability of rental stock. So that's very important. And often it's quite easy actually to misunderstand when we read housing data because what appears to be quite a small numerical impact can actually be the difference between whether when you go to the real estate agent you're able to rent a property and that's vacancy rates. So we know that very, very small changes in rental markets, particularly actually in non-metropolitan areas, very small um, just taking out, say, 30 properties from a regional uh, coastal town can really increase the pressure um, on rents, but more importantly, the difficulty that renters face when they get an eviction notice and they're trying to find a new place to stay or they're trying to move into an area. And so that's why when we hear places tourist um, communities across the coast now, employers saying that ironically they're not even able to um, staff their tourism businesses effectively because their staff have either been um, unable to remain in their own home or unable to relocate into the area and it's the availability of rental stock that's at the real crisis. Nicole, there are lots of ways the market's being regulated uh, in different places around Australia. Tell us what's going on in New South Wales. Look, it's interesting that um, that, that Thomas characterised our state as a as a heavier um, regulatory framework on on short term rentals. I'm not sure that that would be a um, a widely held view, but in in comparison to the rest of Australia, I think Thomas is absolutely right. Our um, our requirement is firstly for short term rentals to be registered with a state um, reg- with a sort of state um, repository, and that's actually a very important first step to get a handle on what's happening in the market. Now, the other regulation is the this day cap um, of up to 180 nights, which applies in metropolitan Sydney, and that is a nod to preserving the permanent rental housing stock. Although, um, so what it means is that the number of nights you can rent out a whole home, and remember we're not worried about people renting out rooms in their own homes or renting out their own house when they're on holidays, but the number of nights you can rent out a whole property is limited to 180 days in a calendar year. Now, whether that really does deter people um, from operating a short-term rental is very questionable. It's certainly, um, I don't know of any other jurisdiction internationally that would set the cap at 180 days because it really allows for a property to be booked every single weekend and the Christmas holidays and probably, you know, a bit more on top of that. Yes. Well, and Thomas, I know that you've looked at the, the fact that landlords are rational actors. You know, what what uh, mechanisms might make it less lucrative and therefore less desirable for them to use their property as a short-term rental? 
Yeah, look, I mean, the, the jurisdictions that have had the most success have, have had far more heavy handed uh, regulation. So, for example, New York City has just implemented a 30 day cap uh, and that's a de facto ban, because if you're running a short stay hotel for or short stay accommodation for 30 nights a year, you just it, the numbers don't work out. Um, now, Australia has this thing called negative gearing. Um, and this is where this is where rational acting uh, comes into question because a lot of Australian property investors are actually motivated by by uh, tax abatements and sort of tax reductions rather than uh, income from investment properties as such, which which makes which means we live in a very perverse reality where you might actually be losing money uh, by maintaining an, an empty property, but gaining money and writing off the tax benefits by sort of funding your holiday home. So it's really difficult to say. And I've only really heard this anecdotally that that this is a, a practice. Uh, in fact, I heard it mentioned about some sort of more prestige properties in, in New South Wales, particularly Sydney, where, where hosts were uh, or owners were keeping their properties deliberately empty. Um, and, and that's the, I mean, the difficult thing there is, is tax regulations federal um, and negative gearing is not going away. So, so again, predicting host behavior, as Nicole said, is nearly impossible. Uh, she's absolutely correct that a 180 day cap is not going to be much of a deterrent. Um, it's, it's a nod to, to this concept of, mm. uh, of suggesting that, uh, that hosts transition their properties, but, but it's certainly not very heavy handed. We've got a few more things I really want to talk about before we finish up our time together in a few minutes. I want to read you a couple of texts, though. We have two short-term rental properties. This is a terrific way for our family to cover the holding costs of these properties, as Thomas mentioned. We would never make them available for long-term rental. Another says, we just stayed in Pearl Beach for a week and all these massive mansions were empty, only 650 permanent residents in a whole suburb. I quizzed a beach walker. So pathetic, says this text. And Angela in Tassie says, yes, it needs regulation. Hobart was the first Australian city to suffer. At one point in 2017, there were 760. 77 Airbnbs and only 78 normal rentals across all price points. It eased considerably once regulated under planning controls. And uh, another, John says, which properties are suitable to live in? Some are rooms or more small studios, no kitchens, etc. What about the family holiday house? This is knee-jerk and just about tax, almost zero benefit. So as we've been hearing, a few different perspectives being aired today on Life Matters. Nicole Gurren, in Victoria, there's a talk at the moment of a state levy of up to 7.5% being charged to consumers. Uh, some of the uh, short-stay platforms are saying that's too high. We don't think it should be any higher than about 3 or 5%. Stays said, uh, yeah, we don't think this is a good idea. We want a, a broader-based tax that will affect tourism and also it will result in fewer properties on stays. Is that a good or a bad thing? Do you think this levy would hit the mark if it goes ahead? Look, it's hard to say. The research evidence on levies in terms of, of how it impacts um, landlord or, or property owner behaviour is limited. And we have to ask what the purpose of the levy is. Now, if it's to operate as a disincentive, it may disincentivise some landlords and, and tip the balance back in favour of, of um holding the property as a permanent rental. But really the use internationally of, of taxes and charges is to actually level the playing field between short-term rentals and other forms of accommodation, hotels, motels, which have got often, you know, heavy compliance costs and sometimes differential rates. Levies are also used if they're able to flow back to the local community. They're used to offset the impacts that high numbers of tourists, particularly at peak visitor periods, 
place on local infrastructure and services. So in and of themselves, um, you know, it might be a very good idea indeed. But if the number one goal is to protect the local housing stock, you'd probably want to look at some other measures such as limiting the number of nights, for instance, or maybe even having special zones where holiday rentals are, are you know, free for all and other places where you would need to have permission and regulate um, very carefully the conversion of existing residential um, homes. In Victoria, the Council to Homeless Persons is saying, look, we could raise $30 million a year with a levy like that and we could push that straight back into social and affordable housing. Would that be worthwhile, Nicole? Look, any additional funding for social and affordable housing is absolutely the right solution. That is something that governments need to invest in. And so when we actually take a step back and ask, would regulating short-term rentals fix Australia's housing crisis? No, it's part of making sure we preserve our existing supply. But we will never get the social and affordable housing that we need if we're trying to raise that money out of tourist taxes. But I, I would agree entirely with the point that where you've got a heavy visitor economy and particularly where that's dependent on residential um, homes, that it is entirely appropriate to use levies to offset the housing market impacts of that. And that's certainly been done overseas, but I don't think it's enough. Thomas, a couple of quick questions to end with, and I'm sorry they have to be quick because they're big. What relationship does class have to short-stay rentals? Uh, Look, I I, I sort of see where you're going with this, and this is just an observation, but uh, short-stay rentals are typically most visible or most sort of tangible in neighbourhoods that are already wealthy. So in Sydney, you won't see many short-stay rentals in places like Bankstown and Parramatta. The vast majority of them are in Manly, Bondi, uh, and and Potts Point and places like that. So it, the the social objection, this is this is not so much the the economic argument, this is more the social objection against sort of tourist degrading neighborhoods, is really the rich fighting the rich. Um, and, you know, oftentimes I'll go to forums where people are very vehemently, and it's almost invariable variably uh, sort of upper middle class residents. And this is, if, if you read, all you have to do is go on the Noosa Facebook group and read the objections against short-term rentals. Not only is it informed by a lot of um, sort of, you know, this is Noosa is for us and, you know, how dare these people park on the front lawn and throw parties. It's It, it just doesn't strike me as uh, as it's coming from the heart, like, oh, we really need to provide affordability to, to lower income workers. It's I don't want these tourists in my neighborhood. Well, yes, so, though, I mean, I have a you could see that. It might also entrench the uh, the fact that lower income people couldn't come to live there because there's nowhere for them to live. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I'm not saying there's not that sort of academic dimension to it. But what I'm saying is these are not academic arguments. Yeah. These yeah. are these are your, your classic NIMBY arguments. Yeah. And just finally, Thomas, you, you touched earlier on the, the way we should regulate. Should we go for state by state or council by council, do you think? Look, it's really it's really tough. Um, Nicole's more the planning expert than I am. I would say it needs to be it need the the baseline regulation needs to be established at at the state level, and then each state can decide whether its respective LGAs 
uh, have various powers to make decisions. But what you don't want is piecemeal regulation, where a state with 200 council areas has 200 sets of rules. That That's just a dog's breakfast, and that'll take years to clean up. I think what you want is consistent rules. that They don't have to be consistent across Australia, but they should be consistent across the state. Yeah, a dog's breakfast, a very Australian situation. Thomas, thank you so much for your time today on Life Matters. You're very welcome. Thomas Sigler, Urban Geographer at the University of Queensland. Professor Nicole Garan, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks very much. Professor Garan is a Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Sydney. Victoria will announce its decision about a levy on uh, short-term rentals later this week. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 